0: Hey, thanks for tuning in to the LNBC Students podcast. My name is Taylor. I'm the student pastor at LNBC, and you're about to hear another sermon from our In the Beginning series. It's actually the final sermon in the series where we look at the first uh, few pages of the Bible in Genesis and see how it sets up the whole biblical story, how it points to Jesus, how it challenges us as followers of Jesus. In this particular sermon is a treat. It's from our good friend Rich, who if you've listened to the podcast, um, you know him, or if you're a member at LNBC, I'm sure that you know Rich. He's a great guy. Uh, He's at seminary in, uh, or in seminary at Southeastern, and um, just a great heart for God and a true follower of Jesus that challenges others, encourages others, Uh, disciples people, uh, loves God's Word, teaches and preaches it when he can, and uh, I think it's a a real treat to hear from him kind of wrap up Genesis 3 for us. So I hope that you enjoy the sermon.
1: Thank you for letting me be here. I'm going to do things a little different than you guys are used to. I don't have notes for y'all. I just really want to talk, share my heart on what God's been doing through me, where this passage is concerned. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and dig into God's word. Father, thank you that years ago you met me in my darkness, and you called me out into your glorious light. I'm not who I once was, Father, and I'm not yet who I will be. I thank you that I am your vessel. Father, and ask that you you meet us here tonight through your word, Father. Let your spirit flow through it that lives are changed, hearts are changed. And Father, begin here with me. Forgive me of my foolishness, my pride, and all those things that separate me from you. And we praise your holy name. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we've been kind of looking at Genesis one through three, and there's a lot of really weird things happening. And this story is important to me because it, it's my life. Up until a few years ago, I was running from God, and I was stuck in a lot of darkness. And as we go along, I'm going to share some of that with you. And I'm going to start by reading the passage. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So what's going on here? Why is, why is God cursing the serpent? And we have to be careful here. This is not the Bible telling us that snakes used to have legs. It's not telling us that snakes used to have wings. So it says, because you have done this. And what God's referring to is how the serpent came and deceived the woman. And as the serpent deceives the woman, God's cursing him for this. Right? And what happens when God says, on your belly you shall go, it's really God saying, you're now humiliated. I'm taking over. You no longer have the power that you once did. And it's so beautiful when you understand here that Adam and Eve are no longer in a position to take care of themselves. And God stands here and says, because you have done this, cursed are you, which means you're no longer blessed, and now on your belly you shall go and eat dust. And it's not saying that snakes eat dirt. That's not what God's saying. And we'll see as we dig more into this passage that what God is saying is Satan now owns death. And as he eats the dust, because man is returned back to the dust later, God is letting us know that until Christ comes, Satan has the power of death. And he says, you shall eat this dust all the days of your life. And the next verse says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And it's such a beautiful picture here because we have to understand that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, we'll see in the next verse, this conflict enters for the first time between human relationships. And what happens here is God says, I will put this hatred between y'all. God has given us a picture of hope. Because he's already told them once they eat of it, they'll die. But if they're going to die, how can Eve have children? And he shall bruise your head. And that's a death blow. Scholars will call this the proto-evangelion, which means simply that this is the first time the gospel is proclaimed in Scripture. God is standing here in the midst of the devil, in front of Adam and Eve who stand guilty before him, and telling them, I will take care of this. And he says, you shall bruise his heel. So if you take that in context... The bruising of the heel and the bruising of the head points to a battle that's going to wage until Jesus comes back. It is Eve's lineage, her seed, through Abraham, through David, all the way down to Jesus and into us that this battle wages. And what's interesting to me here is when the serpent confused and deceived Eve, he turned the whole created order upside down. Because man was given dominion over the created order. But here, Eve and Adam have worshiped the created order. And God now subjects the serpent back under the woman where he rightfully belongs. And moving on, God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What I want you guys to notice here is God doesn't curse the woman. Do you see that? Why would you say that's important that God doesn't curse the woman? So guys, I can sit up here and not say a word for a really long time. Ask Daryl. Go ahead: That's good. Thank you, Adam. Anyone else? Go ahead. Ah. So he made man in his image, right? Think that I think you're both onto something there. God doesn't curse the woman because God said man was good. Because man's made in his image. She is inherently good because of what God said. And God can never go back on his word. Right? And it says here, I will multiply, surely multiply your pain and childbearing. And pain you shall bring forth children. And you'll hear people sometimes teach that God created pain and childbearing, but that's simply not what the text says. God says, I will multiply the pain that already exists. And it's because childbearing now is a reminder of this sin that Eve committed. Well, not Eve yet, but the woman committed when she ate of the tree, right? This sin now that has separated her from a holy God is now envisioned every time she gives birth. And that's what God is getting at here. Where a woman finds her worth and her value God has reminded her of her fallenness. And we see here, too, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. It's a weird way to say that, isn't it? Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And this isn't a text that supports male domination. It's not. What's going on is in the next chapter, the only other place this word desire is used in this way, cain is told that sin is crouching at his door and its desire is for him so when eve we'll call her eve just to make it easy i'm sorry taylor um when eve ate of the tree and gave it to her her husband adam she inverted the way that god created the human relationship to work and god here is now restoring what adam and eve broke so this is what's going on in this text that adam is now going to rule over eve because of the inverted created order god is restoring what we distorted and this is where it gets really interesting to me and up until verse 17 god says a bunch of i will statements right God says, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And in verses 17 through 19, God flips the script. And it says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. What did God curse there? God didn't curse Adam either, did he? Why not? Because he was made in his image and God said that Adam was good when he made him. You shall not eat of it is what happened. Of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. There's that phrase again. All the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do y'all notice something strange here compared to the other two judgment pronouncements? So God doesn't say I will. What does he say? There's a pronoun here that is missing in the other two. There you go. Thank you, Trevor. You shall. Look at what God does here. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it so God has done here something that is it's incredible and it's painful. God has laid the entire burden of sin on Adam. Do y'all see that? God has said, you have done this, you have done this, and because you have done it, this is what happened. It's not easy to be a man in, in, in Christ, fellas. It's not. Because you bear the burden for leading. And what I want you all to see is the punishment here fits with Adam's crime. What did Adam do? What, what was Adam's sin? So he ate of the tree. That's exactly right. How many times is the word eat or eaten used in these three verses? It's used five times in three verses. Do you think God's trying to make a point here? So because Adam's sin was eating of the fruit, Adam's punishment now contains a reminder of his sin. What was to come easy in the garden in God's presence now is toilsome labor. And where Adam finds his worth and his value and his identity is now a reminder of his sin too. So we have a promise that God's already given way back when he was talking to the serpent, right? He says, you will crush his heel and he will crush your head or bruise. So the promise comes after the judgment on the serpent, after the curse, right? And here, if God would have just left us here, he would have been justified, right? So God pursues Adam and Eve and Taylor preached on that Wednesday, right? God pursued Adam and Eve in their sin, and God is standing here, and he's already stood between them and the devil and told the serpent what's going to happen, and God just pronounced his judgment and his punishment on Adam and Eve, right? And that's the first part of this passage, and it's very weighty. God has already told us he created us in his image, and we've sinned against him. God came, And pursued Adam and Eve with the hope of restoring them. And this is how God does that. Look in verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of what? Because Eve is the mother of all living. Adam has heard what God has said. Adam has accepted his punishment. And what does he say? He renames Eve, which shows his headship. And he names her the mother of all living. Do you guys see hope here? There's a little glimmer here, right? That God is up to something that we may not always understand. And if you look in the very next verse, and this is where God just leaves me so amazed. And the Lord God Made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Let me read that again and think through this verse. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I have a question. When Adam and Eve hid, why did they hide? Because they were naked, right? What does God do here? God covers their nakedness. So in the midst of standing guilty, God has met their need. Their immediate need was to be covered. And God gave it to them. And it's not just the fact that God clothed them that's so beautiful. As you read through the rest of the Old Testament, the skins that God uses to clothe Adam and Eve are the clothing of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. So really what's going on here is God is saying, Yes, you've sinned. Yes, there's punishment. Yes, you're going to have to deal with it. But I still love you. You're still mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests. In their greatest need, in their greatest hour of darkness, God stands there and he meets their need. And sometimes I know in my own walk it gets hard when when you feel the world pressing in and you feel like you can't make any progress. And I just come back and I look at passages like this. Where, if anybody had a right to to be slain, it was Adam and Eve, right? And God didn't slay them. God didn't crush them. He went after them and he clothed them. And moving on from here, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. That's interesting. Because when we read the text, our initial reaction is Adam and Eve didn't know good and evil, right? Or they wouldn't have done what they did. But they know evil because they're now participants in it. So the serpent didn't really lie to Adam and Eve. He just didn't tell them the whole truth. And that's why we have to be careful. and We have to know who God is and who we're not. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And now my, my translation puts an extended hyphen there. And it's like God trails his thought off there intentionally. The logical conclusion of this thought is so unbearable that God doesn't utter it. So God is communicating a lot here in what he says and what he doesn't say. Does that make sense? And I want you all to look down because here we hear from the narrator for the first time in, in all of these verses. And the narrator says this, Therefore, because of what God has just said and not said, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden To work the ground from which he was taken. And that's the saddest, one of the saddest lines in all of Scripture. And we'll get back to that in just a minute. So here it goes again. And now we're back in the story. So the narrator's giving us a break here because what's just happened is really, really important. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam was commissioned to keep in guard the garden. Adam was told by God to protect this place. And now he's being driven out and... The, the Hebrew word for driven out here is damn. That's the connotation that it carries. Damned. That's how grave Adam's sin is. But again, we've already seen God has met his needs. Right? Death comes to Adam and Eve because they did not obey what God said. Adam was taken out of the ground, and he had a relationship where the ground was his servant. God's presence guaranteed Adam easy labor in the garden. He still had to work. There were still things Adam had to do, but now being driven out of the garden. The tragedy here is not that Adam and Eve sinned. The tragedy here is they're no longer able to stand in the presence of God. Because of what they've done. And that's what the author is trying to communicate here. For the last three chapters, it's all a setup for this, this moment where God sends man out of the garden. Because we're left with a lot of unanswered questions here How is God gonna do this? How does God keep His word that we are good? How does God fulfill these promises? The rest of Scripture in its entirety is working out this problem. And then Jesus comes, and we know that he has the victory, but we still live outside of the garden and inside of the garden. So when God says, to dust you shall return, think about the gravity of that. Man is no longer the perfect image of God. He goes back to the very thing that he came out of. And now he is almost the servant of that which was his servant. And God wants us to feel that weight. There's a heaviness here, guys. Don't gloss over this. This is the gospel. If we miss this, we've missed God, and we've missed salvation. It's not me that pursues God. It's not. I've tried it. It doesn't work that way. God comes after us in our fallenness, and he comes after us in our brokenness. And he questions us. In the hopes of us confessing our sins. And that way judgment falls. And then we can be restored. And that's what you see here in this passage. God hates sin so much that he didn't just drive Adam and Eve out. God hates sin so much he put Jesus on the cross. That's the weightiness that's here in this text. Thousands of years later, a man, perfect in his life, never committed any sin, was driven to the cross because we can no longer stand before God. God restores us not because of who we are, but because of who he is and the things that he said about who we are in his great name.